0: All right, let's pray. Lord, thanks for your goodness, and thanks for your love and your grace and your mercy through all, all, all of life's circumstances. And so, Lord, as we look at this picture of what could be considered the worst of the worst of circumstances, we see your goodness. Lord, what a, what a picture for us. And so, Lord, we, we just want to hear from you today, so please... Do a work in our hearts and have your way with us, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Turn, if you would, to Lamentations chapter 1. In honor of my son, yeah, I'm going to talk about introduction for a minute, okay? Everybody there? Lamentations chapter 1. Hold up your left index finger. If I got a left index finger, stick it right there and turn over to Matthew chapter 7. Yeah, that's a little bit of a trick. I know it. Matthew chapter 7. These are familiar words, but uh, they really, I think, set the stage and the context for the book of Lamentations for us in so many ways. So, Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to, what's that say? Destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to, what's that word say? Life. Life. And there are few who find it. This is a very, very, very fundamental principle in the Scripture. There are two roads, and you've heard me say, if you've heard me talk about this before, you've heard me say, Man, I wish there was a third road, like the one where I go to heaven, but I get to make all my own decisions. There's not a third road. That's first lesson. Second lesson is one is narrow and one is broad. So the, which one do we want to be on? Narrow. narrow. It's, so you just said, I want to be narrow, right? And you'll be accused of being what? narrow, if you find yourself on the narrow road. That's the reality of life. I've always felt like and uh, said to some extent, if you go through this life, and there's not at least a handful of people that think you're just absolutely weird, you might be on the wrong road, okay? The road we want to be on is the, the narrow road because it leads to what? Life. And it's okay, at least from our perspective, that it's not a real common or popular road. That's our reality, okay? But there's another road. It's broad. It's easy. It sometimes seems fun. It may be fun for a season, but it leads to what? Destruction. Jeremiah, for the previous 52 chapters which we know as the book of Jeremiah, described the road. He said, you guys are on the road. You're on the road. Man, this road is ugly. Heads up, heads up, this road's going to lead to destruction. Look out, look out, Jerusalem. Here they come. The Babylonians are coming. Look out, false prophets. They're, they're giving you a bunch of malarkey. You know, the, the, the road that we're on, it's, it's not a good road. Heads up, heads up, heads up. Warning for 52 chapters, and then we see the history play out and blah, 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 blah. okay? And, and the way I look at this now, as we enter into the book of Lamentations... Jeremiah, historians tell us that Jeremiah was basically kind of sitting on the edge of town of Jerusalem. After Jerusalem had been besieged by the Babylonians for a year and a half, starved the people out, and then they came in and conquered. They came in and destroyed the temple, desecrated the temple, the whole nine yards, wreaked havoc, and Jeremiah is describing the scene. Okay? So it's almost like this Matthew 7, he's been telling us about the road that leads to destruction, and then the book of Lamentations, he's going to describe the destruction for us. Is that fair? Sound like fun? It's educational. We call it educational, okay? All right, back to Lamentations. Lamentations is a series of five sort of funeral dirges, if you will, okay? Uh, funeral poems. Um, five chapters. You may notice chapter one has how many verses? Twenty-two. Chapter two has how many verses? Twenty-two. Chapter four has how many verses? Twenty-two. Chapter five has how many verses? Twenty-two. How many letters do you suppose there are in the Hebrew alphabet? Twenty-two. Each of the first three. I'm sorry. Chapters 1, 2, and 4 have 22 verses, and each one begins with the corresponding letter of the Hebrew alphabet, right? Like uh, chapter 1, verse 1, the word how, okay, whatever that Hebrew letter is that I didn't look up because you wouldn't remember it if I told you, uh, is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet that we translate as that word how. How? Okay, so it starts out that word, and then verse 2 is the second letter, and it goes, that's how chapter 1 rolls out, that's how chapter 2 rolls out, that's how chapter 4 rolls out. Chapter 5 is 22 verses, but it's not uh, exactly uh, according to the order of the Hebrew alphabet, and I'm not sure why. Chapter 3 has 66 verses. The first three three verses start with that first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the next three second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and so on. Does that make sense? Why do you think God would write, it that, write this book that way? Most people believe that he wrote it this way because it would encourage memorization. Now, of all the books in the Bible that I would say, hey, let's memorize it, right? I don't know, maybe Lamentations. But there's a reason for that. Because God wanted his children to know that Matthew 7 principle. And God wants his children today to know that Matthew 7 principle. And... Um, So, God wanted, I believe, twofold. Number one, God wanted his children to memorize this. And number two, there's a sense of, like, destruction from A to Z. Okay? I think it kind of, if you allow me, sort of the poetic liberty, I think that's uh, perhaps the point of all this. But basically, they're written out as five funeral dirges. You know, funerals are interesting. I've done a handful of funerals in my tenure. Some of them, I got to tell you, you know, I always grew up thinking, man, a funeral is just a sad thing that you just need to get through, right? But honestly, in more recent years, I've been a part of some funerals that I would say, that was a great day. My own father, I, I was part of his funeral. It was an awesome day. It was an awesome day. It was tremendously honoring to the Lord and to my dad. And we all sort of celebrated. Some of you here today, I won't embarrass anybody, but we've been a part of some of those funerals, and it's a great thing. It's super educational. It's super honoring to the Lord, and I think we can see that from these verses here. I've been, I've done, a, I've been a part of other funerals that are like, oh man, what do you, you gotta come up with something good to say, really? I guess I'll just talk about the Lord. I did one. the guy was more concerned about what he was going to be wearing in his casket than based on his life decisions. It would appear that he was more concerned about that than he was his spiritual condition. Do you really want that to be what goes on at your funeral? You ever think about your own funeral? Anybody just curious? For sure. For sure. Right? I hope I don't worry more about what I'm going to be wearing because everybody knows what I'll be wearing, a v-neck sweater and a, and a t-shirt. <laughs> like, that's settled already, right? I wear a, a button-up shirt just to, well, since we started recording on Facebook. Okay, uh, but anyway, I'll, I'll, it's, I'm not worried about what I'm going to be wearing in my casket. I'm going to be worried about, I'm not even going to be worried. I'm, I'm going to be focused on my eternal destiny and what happens to those that are left behind, which is what we ought to be thinking about, right? So you know, all that to say, think of this as a funeral that's educational, okay? We've got a five-part funeral uh, poem here. The first three chapters, we're going to talk—today we're going to do the first half, so we're going to get, Lord willing, chapter 1, chapter 2, and the first half of chapter 3. Chapter 1 describes the situation, if, if you want, like, a little bit of an overview of a chapter 2 speaks really of the heart of God in the context of this and perhaps Jeremiah's perception of the heart of God. Chapter 3 describes the response of the prophet Jeremiah to this situation. The response of the person of God. Chapter 1, the situation. Chapter 2, the heart of God, or at least our perception sometimes of the heart of God. And chapter 3, the response by the person of God. So, Ready? Chapter 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow is she who was great among the nations. The princess among the provinces has become a slave. So we start out with this word how. You ever find yourself in a situation like at the end of a certain road? And let me just say, by the way, that road, those roads in Matthew 7, they're sort of a lots of different ways you can unpack that. There's, there's our ultimate road, right? Our ultimate narrow road leads to life eternally in heaven. But if you notice that there are, there are kind of along the way, right? There's like things we can do. There are things I can do today that would cause some destruction, but I still go to heaven. Does that make sense? And so these patterns... You know, ideally, when you want to stay on the narrow road for the rest of your life, and, you know, there's a lot of positive sowing and reaping of planet Earth experience on our way to that road that leads to eternal life. Is that fair? But there are... So there are some, some smaller pieces, and then there's the big piece. And oftentimes... I'm just noticed, noted by this word, how. Oftentimes... People find themselves in a situation and they say, how did I get here? How did I get here? How did I get here? And oftentimes, when we ask that question, it's really because we failed to heed the warning that Jesus gives us in Matthew 7. How did this happen? Well, often it's frankly pretty predictable how this happens not always but often so notice the result the ha- where we find ourselves here we find loneliness death slavery the princess has become a slave jesus said whoever commits sin is a slave to sin john 8:34 and jerusalem here is just a literal picture of that of what happens with slavery to sin She weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. So the former, quote, lovers described here to Jerusalem and to the Jewish people were the neighboring nations, all the peoples, all the other cultures that were uh, surrounding uh, the nation of Judah. They were all about pagan idolatry. They were all their friends. They were all their party buddies, right? You understand that? Our party buddies. What happens to our party buddies when things go south for us, when our Jerusalem gets destroyed? You look around, are our party buddies still our party buddies? No, they're gone. They're gone, and they might even not only have be gone, they might be our enemies. Because here's the thing, Proverbs tells us that he who walks with wise men will be will be wise, but the companion of Fools will be destroyed. Can I tell us something, just straight up, to a crowd this size? There's some wisdom in this statement. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 26. The righteous, let's just go out on a limb and say, we're all righteous. Everybody feel pretty good about themselves right now? Let's just say, we're all righteous. The righteous should choose his friends carefully. For the way of the wicked will lead them astray. The righteous should choose his friends carefully. For the way of the wicked will lead them astray. Among all her lovers, there's nobody to comfort her. All of her friends now have dealt treacherously with her. That is a principle of life. You can just about set your watch on it. The righteous should choose his friends carefully. For the way of the wicked will lead him astray. He who walks with wise will be wise. You want to be wise? Walk with wise people. You want to be wise? Walk with wise people. You want to be destroyed? Oh, there's lots of good formulas in the Bible for how to be destroyed. One is to be a companion of fools. Judah has gone into captivity. And if that sounds sober, get used to it. It's a sober book. (laughs) Sorry. Judah has gone into captivity under affliction and hard servitude. She dwells among the nations. She finds no rest. All her persecutors overtake her in dire straits. The roads to Zion mourn because no one comes to the set feast. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh. Her virgins are afflicted. And she is in bitterness. This really is. I mean, it's, it's a sad book. And so there's a picture here of abandonment. The roads that lead to Zion, they mourn because no one comes. You know, this, this Jerusalem, think about this, used to be a place of great gathering. People would come for the feast. People would come for the, uh, the Passover. People would come for celebration. It was a great gathering place. People would come for inspiration. People would come to worship at the temple. And now it's desolate. All her gates are desolate. No one comes to the feasts. Her adversaries, verse 5, have become the master. Her enemies prosper, for the Lord has afflicted her because of the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone into captivity before the enemy, and from the daughter of Zion all her splendor has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture, that flee without strength before the pursuer. In the days of her affliction and roaming, Jerusalem remembers all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old, when her people fell into the hand of the enemy with no one to help her. The adversary saw her and mocked at her downfall. So you see, what you see really is just, is, is chaos. You see chaos. You know, they thought that their enemies were their enemies, but actually it was the punishment of God. And so you have chaos. You ever notice this? James tells us where envy and self-seeking exist, there's confusion and every evil thing, right? What have you had in Jerusalem up until this point? Envy, self-seeking. We just want our own thing. We We want to have fun. We want to do all of our own thing. And what do you find? It's like deer that have no pasture that flee without strength before the pursuer. Now, I live in Jefferson County. Can I tell you what scares me the most? When I drive down the road in Jefferson County, I'll give you a. a, I like um, multiple choice questions, right? A. Drunk drivers. B. Traffic jams uh, where the guy in the front hits the hits his brakes too fast, and we have a, a you know series of rear end accidents. Or C. Deer. What scares me most in Jefferson County, driving down? Rogers Road, where there's no traffic jams and no rear-ending deer, right? And you look at the deer, and you can almost see, you know, they're hanging out on the edge, right, on the edge of the road. This literally happened to us last summer, so it's a little, still a little personal. The deer happened to us on the, going up 421 by the, by the fence, right? Deer's on, the, on our side of the fence, Right and uh, we're driving down the road, I'm kind of just enjoying the beauty of the day, and somebody in the backseat said, hey, look at that deer, and I'm like, yeah, whatever. Uh, and, and by the time I see it, this deer can't decide if she wants to go th- this way or that way. Clearly she evolved before roads were were <laughs> invented, right? So she just like, randomly decides to just run right into the side of my van. Like, randomly. Chaos. It's a picture of really what you have in Jerusalem, right? Deer just running into the side of the van, right? Because there's nothing better to do, right? Chaos in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is sinned gravely, verse 8. Therefore, she's become vile. All who honored her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. Yes, she sighs and turns away. Her uncleanness is in her skirts. She did not consider her destiny. See, she did not consider her destiny. You read that in Matthew chapter 7? She did not consider her destiny while she was on that road, by the way, toward the destiny. Therefore, her collapse was awesome. She had no comforter. O Lord, behold, my affliction for the enemy is exalted. So, you know, she wanted all who honored her now despise her. Don't we all want honor and respect? And shouldn't we all give honor and respect without flattery, by the way? Because flattery is uh, one of the more subtle forms of manipulation. But aside from flattery, we should give one another honor and respect. We desire honor and respect, what do we have instead when we live like self indulgent idol worshipers? We have humiliation, right? Because they've seen her nakedness. That was a picture of, of humiliation to the Jewish people. Their uncleanness was just a picture of humiliation. The adversary has spread his hand over all her pleasant things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you commanded not to enter your assembly. All her people sigh. They seek bread. They have given their valuables for food to restore life. See, O Lord, and consider, for I am scorned. So you see here, the adversaries come in, and they basically just plundered the temple. They were able to walk right in there and mock the holiness of the temple. And the people... The people, the citizens of of Jerusalem, protecting the temple is the last thing on their mind, because why? They've given their valuables just for food, to try to restore life. They're just trying to stay alive. Do we today find ourselves tempted to try to meet the demands of really our sustenance, and in so doing, we neglect the sacredness of the gathering? We neglect the sacredness of the Lord, of worship, of of all of that. Yes, very tempting. And that's what happened to them. Verse 12, is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Behold and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow, which has been brought on me, which the Lord has inflicted in the day of his fierce anger. From above, he has sent fire into my bones, and it overpowered them. He has spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He has made me desolate and faint all the day. So Jeremiah's stress is not over lack of bread or any of that, but the destruction of the city, the temple, the religious heritage, all a consequence of their sin. And let me just say this while I'm thinking about it. You know, there's a principle of sowing and reaping. There's a principle that the road, uh, the broad road leads to destruction, and there are many that find it. There's a principle of that in our lives. If I sow to the flesh, I'm going to reap corruption, Galatians tells me. But there's another thing that happens, and I, can't, I, I just have to acknowledge it. I can't explain it because I'm not God. I can't fully uh, make it fit into my neat little package that I'd like to. But here's a reality. Here's a reality. Who's writing this book? Jeremiah. Was he a pagan idol worshiper? No. But is he experiencing the fallout of other people's sin? Yes, very much so. And he's describing it. Does that seem fair? No, it doesn't seem fair. Is God's vision and perspective bigger than mine? Way bigger. Way bigger. So I'm just acknowledging that, yeah, it's, it's, it's a bummer that Jeremiah has to write these, these words. And it's a bummer that we have to live in a fallen world. But the reality is we're all sinners. None of us deserve any of the blessings that we get, right? We all deserve eternity in hell. That's our reality because of our sin. There's no one righteous, no, not one. All sin and fall short of the glory of God. So we all deserve that. But thanks be to God who sent Jesus Christ to save us so that we could have an opportunity for redemption and some kind of rescue out of this world. But along the way, there is some muddiness. Is that, is that fair? So I'm just acknowledging it. I think to try to pretend to have a neat, tidy answer to that doesn't do it well. So Jeremiah, he's he's distressed over all this, Uh, but is God going to take care of Jeremiah? Yeah, yeah, He is, He is. And sometimes God lets us go through these things that we learn. Again, Romans chapter five, we also rejoice in tribulation. Because tribulation is what produces character and perseverance and hope. Would you ever know how to endure if you never had challenge? Maybe, maybe not. Probably not. The yoke, verse 14, of my transgression was bound. They were woven together together. By his hands and thrust upon my neck, he made my strength fail. The Lord deliver me into the hands of those whom I am not able to withstand." The Lord has trampled all, underfoot all my mighty men in, it's, in my midst. He has called an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord trampled as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. So many would say that this now is a reference really to the Jewish people because we see here uh, and to, maybe to Jerusalem itself, uh, verse 15, the Lord has trampled underfoot all my mighty men. So it's not really Jeremiah. Uh, you know, he doesn't have his mighty men necessarily. So it's probably a reference to the Jewish people. Uh, but even the nation itself was powerless against the Babylonians because God was not defending them. For these things I weep. My eye overflows with water because the comforter who should restore my life is far from me. My children are desolate because the enemy prevailed. And so this is now probably Jeremiah personally himself. He's referred to as the weeping prophet. Verses like this is, uh, is what kind of gives him that name. For these things I weep. My eye overflows with water uh, because the comforter who should restore my life is far from me. Is the Lord far from Jeremiah? No, but he feels like it. Do we sometimes feel like the Lord is far away? Yeah, we sometimes feel like the Lord is far away if we're honest with ourselves. But does that mean he is far away? No. He's near to the brokenhearted, scripture tells us. So as I'm thinking about this, let me just say this. We all go through varying degrees of this kind of thing that we read about in Lamentations. And our challenge so often is to do what Romans 12 tells us, to renew our minds, right? And so oftentimes what we got to do is we just got to fill our head with truth. I personally can't imagine trying to navigate this life and the circumstances of, of this life, of my life individually, of our life nationally, of our life internationally, of this world, of all the stuff that goes on without filling my head daily with truth. I can't imagine. My head would be spinning. So, we've got to fill our head with truth. Truth must trump our feelings. Truth must trump our feelings. And so, Jeremiah here has feelings. He's a human, just like we are. He has feelings. He has, you know, prophetic insight and all that. But at the end of the day, he's a human with feelings. And he must, and he does, he does. And By the way, that's why I want to get to the first half of chapter 3 today because Jeremiah, if you've read ahead, Jeremiah's going to hit a home run uh, in the middle of chapter 3, right? That's the punchline. Jeremiah's going to hit a home run in the middle of chapter 3 in terms of trumping his feelings with the truth of God's Word. So, but between now and the middle of chapter 3, verse 17, Zion spreads out her hands but no one comforts her. The Lord has commanded concerning Jacob that those around him become his adversaries. Jerusalem has become an unclean thing among them. The Lord is righteous, for I rebelled against his commandment. Hear now, all peoples, and behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men, again, this is speaking probably of the people of Israel, uh, have gone into, cap- my virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. I called for my lovers, all those friends that were all around me, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders, the ones that were supposed to lead me uh, in uh, righteous worship of the Lord, they breathed their last in the city while they sought food to restore their life. They should have been leading us in righteousness, but they were looking out for their own uh, needs because they were so desperate. See, O Lord, that I am in distress. My soul is troubled. My heart is overturned within me, for I have been very rebellious outside the sword bereaves. At home, it is like death. And so, you know, these verses uh, regarding Jerusalem and its people, we notice that we have, they have no comforter for us. The Holy Spirit is our comforter, and there's no one to uh, relieve them of their burden. Verse 21, They have heard that I sigh, but no one comforts me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. Bring on the day that you have announced That they may become like me, let all their wickedness come before you, and do to them as you have done to me for all my transgressions, for my sighs are many and my heart is faint. So again, I believe these verses regard uh, are from the first person perspective of the Jewish people, and it's like you know even now the only comfort that they can uh, find is the encouragement that the same thing that happened to them is going to happen to their enemies. Is that a good um, attitude to have when we go through the consequences of our sin? No. No. Let God deal with the Babylonians. Because he will. Let God deal with the Babylonians. When we find ourselves maybe reaping the consequences of our sin, or maybe even reaping the consequences of somebody else's sin, I hope you've heard me say this before, and I hope it, I hope it resonates Beware of bitterness. Beware of bitterness. Bitterness is one of the most destructive characteristics in the human soul. Because it's below the surface. Hebrews talks about a root of bitterness. It's below the surface. It always seems like it should be justified. If you're bitter about somebody, something or somebody, you have reason to be. And you feel like you'll use words like righteous anger, (laughs) right? I deserve to be bitter. And the litmus test is, do you want that person to reap some sort of negative consequence for what they've done? If you want that to happen, or if you rejoice when that does happen, then beware of the bitterness on your own heart. God will deal with the Babylonians. And historically, by the way, he did. And amazingly, I believe he saved King Nebuchadnezzar in the midst of all that, right? Because God loves the individual. God will deal with them. But your job is to remain faithful. My job is to remain faithful. So I don't need to worry about let all their wickedness come before you and do to them as you've done to me. Because if I get what I have deserved, then I get what I deserve. Simple as that. All right. Everybody good? That was a good pick-me-up, chapter 1? Another pick-me-up, chapter 2? Right? Okay. All right. Since you insist. Chapter 2. I want to point out, in chapter 2, the word daughter is mentioned 12 times. I think that's not coincidence. You know, there's a relationship that a father has with a daughter that's unique. Right? I have daughters. And the relationship I have with daughters is different than the relationship I have with sons. Is that fair? Sometimes I'll talk to one of my sons and my wife, who's not a father or a son, what do you think she says sometimes? Too what? Too harsh. Mm, that just didn't sound like a mother talking to, you know, right? Sometimes a boy you know, and I say, uh, I either repent or I say, it, it's, it's man stuff, right? Do I talk to my daughters like that? There's a thing, there's a, there's a there's a tenderness with a father and a daughter that God is describing here. And so keep in mind here, God in the, uh, chapter two is really about sort of God's angle, right? Or Jeremiah is writing about God's angle. And let me just warn you a little bit: as Jeremiah writes, he writes a little bit like Job writes, okay? Like, wow, it seems like God's against us. God, it seems like God's against his daughter, okay? And we've got to keep that in perspective and keep it in the context. How do we best interpret Scripture in the context of what? Scripture. The best commentary on Scripture is Scripture. And so, always keep that in perspective. And then with that, we have to recognize that Jeremiah is a man. But we'll kind of walk through this. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud of his anger. He cast down from heaven to the earth the beauty of Israel and did not remember his footstool in the day of his anger. So the picture here is the Lord's anger towards his daughter, but it feels like total destruction to, to Jerusalem, to uh, the Jewish people, and even to Jeremiah, but God has a plan for his people. God has to deal with the sin, and then remember, God has a restoration plan for his people. He's going to bring them back after 70 years of captivity, and his plan even beyond that, uh, even yet future today, his prophetic plan for the nation of Israel is beautiful. So yes, God has to punish his daughter, but he has a heart of restoration toward his daughter, even in the midst of this. But I think this helps us paint the picture that sometimes in the midst of the thing, it's hard to see the big picture. Fair enough? In the, the Lord has swallowed, verse 2, swallowed up and has not pitied all the dwelling places of Jacob. He has thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned the kingdom and its princes. He has cut off in fierce anger every horn in Israel. He has drawn back his right hand from before his enemy from before the enemy, he has blazed against Jacob like a flaming fire, devouring all around. So notice this. He's brought down the strongholds of man. He's not impressed with man's strength. But I want you to notice this here in verse 3. He has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. He's drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. See, when Israel was serving the Lord, God's right hand was their protection. He was their defense. Does that make sense? Is there any offense that can overcome that defense? There's no offense that can overcome that defense. But when his hand is withdrawn, how good does the offense have to be? Any offense can beat no defense. Does that make sense? Can you tell what I've been watching here in March? March Madness, of course. We've been watching March Madness, right? Where you you've been watching March Madness? Both of you, good. So, so March Madness is a college basketball tournament. It's kind of a big event, right? I think it's bigger than the Indy 500, and I grew up in Indianapolis. And so... Um, but it's fascinating to me, I love watching the strategies of different teams and how they kind of work their various techniques. Does that make sense? And I love, biblically, the picture that, well, truthfully, I watch basketball because it helps me understand the Scripture. Okay. As I was saying, there's offense and defense, okay? There's offense and defense. Here's a classic. Turn over to my favorite offense and defense story, Judges chapter 16. You know the old story right? Our buddy Samson, who teaches us a lot. You know, there are a lot of things you can learn from, from characters in the Bible and from people in life, sometimes positive and sometimes negative, right? There are a bazillion lessons you can learn from, about what not to do from the life of our good friend Samson. Fair enough? Samson had a problem with what? Women. Samson had a problem with women. Uh, by this point in the narrative, I won't read through all the details just to spare you the details, but Samson has demonstrated his problem with women many times by, by this point. And now we find, himself, find him in chapter 16 dealing with this woman uh, named Delilah. And uh, Delilah, let me make sure I got my verses right. Yeah, Delilah says, hey, Sam, what's the the secret of your great strength? He says, well, all you got to do is tie me up with these ropes that have never been used, and I'll be weak like any man. So she waits till he falls asleep. She ties him up with ropes, has a bunch of Philistines in the closet. She calls him out, and she says, hey, Sam, the Philistines are upon you. What's he do? He breaks all the ropes, kills all the Philistines. Now, men... The very next thing uh, Delilah asks you is, now, Sam, you have mocked me and you deceived me. What is the strength of your, uh, what's the secret of your great strength? And he gives us gives some other, you know, if you, if you weave my hair in a loom, uh, I'll be weak like any other man. Same thing. Philistines come out of the closet. Hey, Sam, the Philistines are upon you. His strength hasn't left him. Boom, he kills all the Philistines. She says, now, Sam, come on. Really? You say you love me, right? Sin makes you stupid. Sin makes you stupid. Make no mistake about it. Sin makes you stupid. Samson is the picture of of sinful stupidity, right? He tells this woman, I forget, I think three or four times before he gets to the final thing. So, chapter 16, verse 20. I'm sorry, uh, verse 19, start verse 19. He finally says, well, if you cut my hair, I'll be weak like any man, which is true because it would have been a violation of his Nazirite vow. So she lulled him to sleep on her knees because you can lull a spiritually stupid person to sleep with sin. She lulled him to sleep on her knees and called for a man, had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he woke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free and please... Notice this sentence. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. How chilling is that? He did not know that the Lord had departed from him. He lost all his defense. He lost all of his defense. And he didn't even know it. How sad. So then the Philistines took him, put out his eyes, brought him down to Gaza, bound him with bronze fetters, and he became a grinder in the prison. However, the hair of his head began to grow after it had been shaven. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered together to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god. I want you to notice this. And to rejoice. And they said, our god has delivered into our hands Samson, our enemy. So what did the Philistines say? We've got amazing offense. You catch this? They said, they celebrate this big rejoicing to Dagon, their God, and they say, Our God has delivered into our hands Samson, our enemy. We got an amazing offense, and our offense is named Dagon. They didn't have amazing offense. Samson had zero defense. You get it? What does our sin do? It makes us stupid, it causes sowing and reaping consequences. And here, to me, is the saddest piece of the whole thing it discredits God. And it makes the enemies of God think that they've got a great offense. You see that? So, basketball helps you understand Scripture. Say it again, right? So, the people, back to Lamentations, the people in Israel, the people in Judah, the people of Jerusalem had no offense, or no defense. Verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3, he has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy and As a result, Babylon wasn't all that strong. They certainly weren't stronger than God. But once God withdraws his hand, yeah, then that's what happens. That's what happens. Verse 4, standing like an enemy, he has bent his bow with his right hand like an adversary. He has slain all who were pleasing to his eye on the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord was like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces. He has destroyed her strongholds and increased mourning and lamentation in the daughter of Judah. So here's my point. Just like their sin, the sin of Samson discredits God, makes people think that Dagon is so powerful, even to a prophet like Jeremiah, the sin of the people can cause confusion about who God is and what's he doing. It feels like God is our enemy. The Lord was like an enemy. Is God our enemy? No. But our sin, when we walk in sin, When we walk in deliberate sin, and we experience sowing and reaping in our lives as a result of our sin, then the picture of who God is and his character gets pretty fuzzy, and even to the point of being discredited. So we've got to be careful. Verse 6, he has done violence to his tabernacle as if it were a garden. He has destroyed his place of assembly. The Lord has caused the appointed feasts and Sabbaths to be forgotten in Zion. In his burning indignation, he has spurned the king and the priest. So, yeah, to a point that's true. The Lord has spurned his altar. He has abandoned his sanctuary. He has given up the walls of her palaces into the hand of the enemy. They have made a noise in the house of the Lord as on the day of a set feast. And so, God allowed the Babylonians to destroy the temple because there had been a long void of sincere worship there. God didn't want to have, uh, you know, it says the appointed feast and the Sabbath. God got rid of those. Well, the people got rid of those in sincerity. The Lord, verse 8, has purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. Is the wall a powerful defense? No. Only the hand of God was their defense. He has stretched out a line. He has not withdrawn his hand from destroying. Therefore, he has caused the rampart and wall to lament. They languish together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the nations. The law is no more. And her prophets find no vision from the Lord. So the wall was no defense. The gates were no defense. They'd forsaken the Lord and they lost their strength just like Samson. The elders of the, daughters of, Zion, of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground and keep silence. They throw dust on their heads and gird themselves with sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem bow their heads to the ground. And so the old and the young likewise are distressed. My eyes fail with tears. My heart is troubled. My bile is poured out on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because the children and the infants faint in the streets of the city. They say to their mothers, where's grain and wine? And they swoon like the wounded in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out in their mother's bosom. How shall I console you? To what shall I liken you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What shall I compare with you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is spread wide as the sea. Who can heal you? So, you know, God's desire for parents throughout the Old Testament and and as well as the New Testament is to pass on a godly heritage from generation to generation. In this case, the children are distressed because uh, their parents have neglected the things of God and God is distressed for them. Verse 14, Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not uncovered your iniquity to bring back your captives, but have envisioned for you false prophecies and delusions. So the strongholds weren't enough defense, the religion wasn't enough defense, the walls of the temple are no defense, and neither are the false prophets and their false encouragement. All who pass by clap their hands at you. They hiss and shake their heads at the daughter of of Jerusalem. Is this the city that is called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? And so, again, this place was once a glorious place. And again, let me just say, as I said before, we can't rely on past victories in the face of today's challenges, right? I mean, we can look to what has God done in the past in our lives, in, li- in, the, in our nation, and all of that. We can be thankful for that, but we need to be faithful today. We can't say, you know, I got saved back in 72, and now I'm doing whatever I want, and I live however I want, and expect no, con- no consequence. And the same with the city of Jerusalem. You know, this city was the perfection of beauty the joy of the whole earth. And now people just walk by and and mock it. That's the consequence of sin. All your enemies have opened their mouth against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth. They say, we have swallowed her up. Surely this is the day we have waited for. We have found it. We have seen it. So the enemies are victorious. Because there was no defense. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has fulfilled his word, which he commanded in the days of old. He has thrown down and has not pitied. He has not caused an enemy to rejoice, I'm sorry, and has caused an enemy to rejoice over you. He's exalted the horn of your adversaries. So, God is not mocked. What they sowed, they reaped. The heart, cry- the heart cried out to the Lord, O wall of, Jeru- of the daughter of Zion, let tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief, give, yourself- give your eyes no rest. Arise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the watches, pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift your hands toward him for the life of your young children who faint from hunger at the head of every street. So their time here is a time to cry out to the Lord. When's the right time to cry out to the Lord? When Jerusalem's destroyed? No. Please get this. The time to cry out to the Lord is the first moment we become aware of our sin. The first moment that we think, man, I'm walking the wrong direction. And I hope we get from the last few weeks when we talked about Babylon, you know, starting in the Tower of Babel and ending in the harlot of of Babylon in the book of Revelation, right? It starts out subtle sometimes. You ever notice this? Sometimes you might just say, I'm not walking in flagrant rebellion, but I'm just kind of doing my own thing for a little time right? Can I tell you? That's time to cry out to the Lord. That's the time to cry out to the Lord. You know, I'm just getting kind of sloppy. Now, are we saved by works? No. But sloppy tends to lead to more sloppy. And more sloppy tends to lead to apathy or Something else that's just a little sort of more subtle than outright rebellion. But sin leads to sin. And the time to acknowledge it is the moment we become aware of it. Proverbs tells us the path of the righteous is like the the light of dawn that shines brighter till the full day. You know, when we walk in righteousness, our path gets a little more clear as we go. And the same is true of unrighteousness. It gets a little worse as we go, right? And I believe in God's grace. He allows us to see some of those things. If we're honest with ourselves, if we hear the voice of the Lord, if we're sensitive to the Holy Spirit, I believe he kind of whispers in our, in our ear, you know what, this would be a good time to change roads. And, you know, it's a, it, it, it was not as good a time as yesterday was, but it's a better time than tomorrow. And tomorrow, you know, you keep going down that road. God would say, I believe, you know what? This would be a great time to change roads. Today is the day of salvation. It's better than tomorrow. It's Not as good as yesterday was, but it's, it's better than tomorrow. That's the time to cry out to the Lord. Don't wait till Jerusalem is ravished. Don't wait till you're sitting writing words like this. verse 20. See, O Lord, and consider to whom have you done this? Should the women eat their offspring, the children they have cuddled? Should the priest and prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? Young and old lie on the ground in the streets. My virgins and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You've slaughtered and not pitied. You have invited as to a feast day the terrors that surround me. In the day of the Lord's anger, there was no refuge or Savior. Those whom I have borne and brought up, my enemies, have destroyed. So, you know, here's the thing. It gets bad. It got bad to the point of cannibalism. Sin gets bad. And no one can really, you know, when you, when you take that first step, you may have noticed this in your life, I've, I certainly have, when you take that first step of like walking the wrong direction, and maybe you know it, You kind of think, you know, if I do that thing, then this is what's going to happen, and it won't be real good, but I could probably clean it up. I could do some damage control. Right? Can I suggest that no human being, since Adam and Eve, can accurately anticipate what that damage is going to be when they think they can control it? Eve just wanted a little fruit, right, of the knowledge of good and evil. She probably thought, yeah, I'll probably have a little more good and evil understanding. I can deal with that. Did she know that all of humanity would be affected? No. When we walk through things that we know are not right, can we really accurately anticipate what the negative consequences and ramifications will be? There's no way. There's no way. Our sin always affects more than we think, and it never just affects ourselves. Sin never just affects ourselves. We don't live in vacuums. Our sin never affects just ourselves. That's what the Jewish people didn't realize. God gives us His Word and His Spirit to empower us to live by His Word for our protection, not to spoil our fun, but for our protection. Chapter 3, the heart of Jeremiah in his response to, in light of this situation. And I, I wanted to get to the first half of chapter three because that's the home run. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has led me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely he has turned his hand against me time and time again throughout the day. He has aged my flesh and my skin and broken my bones. So Jeremiah's just honestly saying, you know what? It feels like God has punished me because he's punished the nation, and it's, it's hard to kind of separate the two. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and woe. He has set me in dark places like the dead of long ago. He has hedged me in so that I cannot get out. He's made my chain heavy. Even when I cry and shout, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways and with hewn stone and made my paths crooked. And so, you know, he's reflecting on the Babylonian siege. He feels like God has surrounded him and made himself a prisoner. And to, again, to a certain extent, Jeremiah did reap some of what everybody else sowed. He has been to me a bear lying in wait like a lion in ambush. He has turned aside my ways and torn me in pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set me up as a target for the arrow. He has caused the arrows of his quiver To pierce my loins. So, more feeling like destruction. And so, here's an important point. When we go through trials, even trials not resulting from our own sin, it's tempting to blame God. That's what Job did. To a certain extent, that's what Jeremiah is doing. This is why this is so important. This is a critical point. This is a critical point. We have to look at our circumstances through the filter of God's word and God's character. Okay? Oftentimes, we look at God's word and God's character through the filter of our circumstances. And that's backwards. Does that make sense? We have to understand God's word and God's character and put circumstances through that filter to properly understand what's going on. It's so important to know the character of God and to filter our circumstances through his character rather than making inferences about his character from our circumstances. Please get that. That is critical. Verse 14, I have become the ridicule of all my people, their taunting song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drink wormwood. He has also broken my teeth with gravel and covered me with ashes. You have moved my soul far from peace. I have forgotten prosperity and said my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. And so Jeremiah truly is at a low point here. Remembering my affliction and roaming my, the wormwood and the gall My soul still remembers and sinks within me. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every single morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in him. This is the home run. So, much like, you know, when you read through the Psalms, David goes this, makes this transition from whining about his circumstances to realizing the character of God to rejoicing in the character of God, right? That happens so often over and over in the Psalms. Jeremiah is going through the same process here. But here's the thing. It requires a deliberate act of the will. When we face trials, we must stand on the truth of God's word and the truth of God's character that he loves us. We don't have to understand our circumstances, we just walk through those circumstances in the context of those two things, the truth of God's word and the truth of God's loving character. And when we do that, we can praise him, regardless of the circumstance. We can say, great is your faithfulness, because he said, oh yeah, this I recall to mind, through the Lord's mercies we're not consumed, because his compassions fail not, they're new every single morning. Great is your faithfulness. Jeremiah can say those words in the midst of everything we've read in the first two chapters now Jeremiah finds hope verse 24 therefore I hope in him whereas in verse 18 my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord which is true does he, has his hope perished or does he have hope The second is true. He has hope because he's recalled to mind the goodness and the character of God. The Lord is good, verse 25, to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So the reality of God's goodness and the source of our hope. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth to let him sit alone and keep silent because God has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust that there may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him and be full of reproach. And so uh, it's good to take whatever God gives us in the context of God's love and God's mercy and recognize that it is what it is. For the Lord will not cast off forever, though he causes grief. Sometimes we go through things that are grievous. But does that mean the Lord has cast us off forever? Absolutely not. Yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies, for he does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. So God doesn't cast off his people. He doesn't afflict willingly. He doesn't want to afflict us. Sometimes he causes grief or allows grief because of our need for learning or discipline. But he's full of compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. So, life can be hard sometimes as a result of our own sin, sometimes just because, right? We need to see those challenges as opportunities to learn and grow, and we need to know the character of God and filter life's circumstances through the goodness of God, his character, and his word. Now, if you don't mind, I want the worship team to come up. And I want us to sing that song at least the first part of that song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, because I want us to close with this. And, and part of why I was thinking this is um, I acknowledge, I'm aware of some of our situations that are represented in this room, and some of them are very difficult. I, I would be, it would be uh, insensitive for me to call them anything else. Some are very difficult challenges that that I hear about that people go through. Often like Jeremiah, not because of anything we've done, but because we live in a fallen world. But I think the challenge with that is, for us, is we need to make sure that truth trumps our feelings. The truth of God's word needs to trump our feelings. And we need to be able to say, therefore, I have hope. Theref- Remember, my, my soul still remembers and sinks within me. This I recall to mind. Therefore, I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies, we're not consumed. You know, when I hear about your problems, I wish I could fix them. I really do. I wish I had an easy answer. I really don't. But I do know this. God's Word is truth, and God is good. His faithfulness is very, very great. And I think there is something that happens, even as we go through the challenges of this life. If we can just remind ourselves, or be reminded by the Holy Spirit, that God's Word is truth, And God is good. Then I think it eases the pain a little bit. Maybe. Maybe it even resets our perspective a little bit. And maybe we can rejoice in those things a little bit. God's goodness is better than any circumstance. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. God has blessed us above and beyond all we can ask or think. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And we are all unfinished works, are we not? We're all unfinished. But we can all acknowledge that He began a good work in us. And if He is capable of beginning a good work in us, because He's the author and the finisher of our faith, if He began a good work in us, He is faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And we stand on the truth of His Word, and we stand on the goodness of His character, and we rejoice in Him. And sometimes we have to renew our minds in that. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you're so good to us. We thank you that you died for us. We thank you that you make intercession for us. We thank you that you give us your Holy Spirit to lead us, to guide us, to empower us, to comfort us, to guide us into all truth, And we pray, Lord, that we would walk in the Spirit and so not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Please have your way in our lives and do that work in our hearts and in our minds. In Jesus' name, amen.